This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. One day, Jesus' disciples come to him and they ask him a question that I hear students ask all the time. How do we pray? It was probably more of a statement. They said, teacher, teach us how to pray. All the time I'll hear people say, well, I don't know how to pray. How do I pray to have my prayers answered? Or what do I say? Or or how do I repeat it? What should I memorize? How do I pray? And we talked last week about Jesus leading off with actually two ways not to pray. He talked about praying like like hypocrites, people that think they have it all together, and the reason they pray is to get glory for themselves. They just want to look good. And that translates into everything. Like, how many times in our lives are we just doing something because we want to be noticed? But everything about our prayer is about this intimate space between us and the Lord. Jesus says, go in your room, close the door, get away from the noise. This is between you and your Father who hears you. You don't need people to hear you. And then the second one was, don't pray like the Gentiles. Don't pray like unbelievers. Do you know how unbelievers treat their idols? They treat their idols as something to get from. They pray as if to manipulate God to receive something from him. It's always, I want this, I want this, I want this. But God is not a genie. God is not a magic wishing star. God is the almighty, sovereign creator of the universe who would love us so that he would call his people to make them his sons and daughters. We go before God in humility and surrender. When we bring our our requests to him, it's, Lord, this is in your hands. And I surrender to you what you see as best. And so Jesus is saying, don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't pray like the Gentiles. And then he rolls over into, here's how you pray. I'm going to give you a model. And if you look through the Lord's Prayer, it is a model of how to pray. It's not just something that you memorize and you repeat on rote. Because if I say the Lord's Prayer enough times, I'm going to get whatever else I pray for. The Lord's Prayer is a model. You look at it and you study its priorities, its focus, the heart behind the Lord's Prayer. And it has so little to do with us. And so I'm going to cover the first half tonight. And you guys are lucky to have Shane Scott uh, picking up the second half next week. So they say, teach us how to pray. Matthew 6, we're going to start in verse 9 tonight. I think you guys beat me there because I was doing the talking. Matthew 6, verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins, our debts, our trespasses, as we also have forgiven our debtors, those who sinned against us. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. You ready to break this down? Oh, man, this is so rich. So let's begin at the beginning. Our. Stop right there. If you notice something, most of the time when I pray this prayer, it's always individual. It's just me. We pray this. And yet, Jesus is actually setting up this prayer as a prayer we pray corporately. As in togetherness, as in the body of Christ, praise together. Our Father, look all the way through. Who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who sinned debts, sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation. This whole prayer is the body of Christ praying together. It assumes that we're often praying together corporately. Therefore, we're not just praying for ourselves, by ourselves, we're often praying together for each other. 
1 Corinthians 12, 12 says the human body has many parts. Like we have hands and feet and eyes and everything. But the many parts make up one body. So it is with the body of Christ. We're meant to work together. You know how many muscles it takes for the human body to just walk? With all the coordination and all the little muscles it takes, we have to, it has to work together. And we pray together. 1 Corinthians, this passage ends with 1 Corinthians 12, 27. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you are a part of it. So here's just a brief application. Right off from the first word of the Lord's Prayer is that when someone's on the mic praying, they're not just like the captain of a football team that says, all right, guys, let's go do this. And he takes off running on the field, and the team is like, yay, from, from the bench. No, whoever takes the mic or the worship team or whatever, this is your opportunity to get involved. As they're praying, you're praying too. As they're sharing their heart with the Lord, they're just a leader of what all of us are doing together, praying together. What if during our time when someone's up here praying, whether it's Keely or Brian or me or somebody else, instead of God hearing one prayer, what if it's Elevate praying together? What if we are a chorus of worship and praise and request to God together? Our Father who is in heaven. Man, so beautiful. Our Father. It's interesting that it starts right here. Our Father in heaven. And there's two things going on here that are so special. And the first is that it recognizes God as our Father. You see, throughout the Bible, 14 times God is called Father. In every one of those 14 times, it is that God is the Father of the nation of Israel. You don't find a time in the Old Testament where God is the Father of an individual. We have two things going on here. We have our Father in heaven, but watch this. Jesus takes this to a whole new level. The word that Jesus uses is Abba. And Abba isn't just like this seniority title. Abba is the personal word that a child calls their father. Dad. Daddy. It's intimate. It's not corporate. It's not like a title. It's this intimate, close connection that Jesus invites me and you to have with God, our Father. In fact, Jesus always referred to God using the term Abba. And check this out. Jesus is welcoming you to refer to God as your dad. A greater dad than any father. There may be a lot of us in here that didn't have good fathers. And yet, our Heavenly Father eclipses even the best of fathers. Listen to this. Romans chapter 8, verse 14 through 16. Let's go there together. Romans chapter 8. If you're in Matthew, go right. Remember to keep your thumb in Matthew 6. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. We're not going to turn to every verse that I bring out tonight, but I want you to see. I want you to see this one. This is one you can lean on. Romans 8, chapter 14. Give me a, uh if you're not there yet. In the big one? Cool. Anybody? Any, uh I don't hear any leaves turning. Okay. Chapter 8, verse 14. For all... Who are led by all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and or daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons or daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirits, and we that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him 
in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see, it is a misnomer. It's a misunderstanding. It's wrong. Anytime you hear someone say that all of humanity are the sons and daughters of God. No, God loves all of humanity. They're all creations of God. And yet, those who are sons and daughters of God are those who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. That God adopts them and makes them his sons and daughters. Witnessed by the Holy Spirit. That's beautiful. It's exclusive to all those who call out on Jesus as their king. We have a daughtership and a sonship through Christ. It's so beautiful. Psalm 103. I'm taking you to this one too. Cut your Bible in half, you'll be pretty close to Psalms. Psalms 103. How does the Old Testament define God as Father? Oh, so good. Psalm 103, we're going to go to verse 13. Thank you for turning with me. Boy, I respect you guys. You guys are awesome. Thank you for bringing your Bibles every week, chasing me all over this thing. I saw that thumb up right back at you. 103, verse 13. Anybody? Ah, not there yet? No, it's good. Okay, here we go. Psalm 103, verse 13. How does the Old Testament define a father? As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Who? Those who fear him. He shows compassion. But guess what? This is on the heels of something that is so beautiful. This whole idea of God as father is actually the conclusion of God's character. Back up to verse 8. And let's start reading there. The Lord is merciful and he's gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide. That means to rebuke, to call you to the carpet. He will not always rebuke or punish, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. Thank you, Jesus. For as, listen, read with me. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions, our sins from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. All those who fear the Lord, all those who have made him their master, they come underneath this blessing of his children, of the sons and daughters of God, that their sins are washed away, that his love for them is as great as the heavens are above the earth. And it's so fun that science keeps learning how high God's love really is as we study the universe. Our Father. One of my kids right now, Silas, he is three years old, and he is the coolest little kid, and he's probably one of the most affectionate of, of our kids. And Silas has this thing where he is always hanging on me, I can't sit down without him flopping into my lap and headbutting me in the chest and squirming all around. If I stoop down to the ground to pick up a toy, he comes like a monkey and he hangs off my neck and he picks up his feet and, and like dead drops my head down. Like every time I'm near, and he like, I pick him up and I hug him and he gives me kisses and he just goes, Dad, you're the best dad in the whole world. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I love you. I just want to squeeze you until your head explodes. I just love you so much. That's my kid. Like, Two nights ago, I'm like repairing my toilet. I'm just swapping out a wax ring for anybody who knows toilets. And Silas comes in and he goes, Dad, you're the best dad in the whole world. I'm like, oh. And he goes, you can fix anything. And I was like, oh, that's so not true, but I love you too. And then my seven-year-old comes in and he goes, Dad, I think you should call a pipe guy because he knows more than you, so he'll fix it better than you. And I was like, wow, I love you. So bring Silas back in here. This is my kid. We have a God that says, I kneel down to your level. Come hang off my neck. I sit on a throne. Come climb in my lap. Call me your dad. Be affectionate as I'm affectionate with you, as I pour out my compassion for you. 
When, you're, when you go and get alone in your prayer time, go before him like your dad. Maybe like a dad you've never even known. You can have that kind of relationship with him. This is what Jesus is encouraging with our Father. And then Jesus pulls back for perspective. Our Father who is in heaven. Yes, he's our Father, and he bends down on one knee to get eye to eye with us. But we can't lose sight that he is preeminent. He is transcendent. And those are just fancy words that means he is way above what we can understand. He is way above even the universe itself. Y'all, he fills the universe. And yet, he is outside of the universe presiding over it. He is beneath the universe sustaining it. The heavens are his throne and the earth. It's just his footstool. It's just the bench that he puts his feet up on. He is sovereign creator, king. Just like a Roman general, as his troops go into battle, would go up on a high hill so he could see everything that was going on and send commands so that the troops would follow his orders. How high is the vantage point of God? He is our Father who is in heaven, who is presiding over everything that can be seen from heaven down, who is in control sovereignly from heaven down, absolutely in charge. Psalm 103.19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. In Roman culture, the father of the house had what was called in Latin, oh, I lost my mind. there we go, Portia Protesta, Portia Protesta, which means the father owns everything in the house, including the very lives of those who are in the house. He could put his own children to death in extreme situations. When we look at a father who is in heaven, we have to ask the question, what domain does he have Portia Protesta over? And it is everything. He is the father that kneels down and gets eye to eye with us. And he is the father who is spinning galaxies And he is the father who is raising up kings and presidents and dictators. And he is the same father that is dethroning them and throwing them down. That is our father in heaven. Jeremiah 23, 23 sums this entire phrase into one. It's God speaking and he says, am I a God? At hand, as in close, declares the Lord, and not a God far away. So am I not only close with you, but am I also far? Am I up on that hill? Am I presiding over all things? Can a man hide himself in secret places so I can't see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? So what is Jesus modeling with the Lord's prayer here in just the first few words? It begins with worship. It begins with a critical recognition of who God is. I'm telling you, we have to go before God in prayer with a recognition of exactly who he is because as soon as we get off base with an understanding of who God is, that's when our prayers slide down a slippery slope. That's when God becomes the old man that we just try to manipulate and get something from. Or that's when God becomes the hard dictator that doesn't want to hear anything that we have to say. That's when it becomes all about Me, us. But when we have a correct view of who God is, when we bring that to him in worship, that he is holy, that he is sovereign, that he is the Savior, then the rest of our prayer is going to fall in line with that, like the engine on a train. The application here is that I challenge you to start opening your prayers with worship. Start opening your prayers with saying who God is. Say it out loud. The first person that will hear you is yourself. Remind yourself who God is. If you need examples, go to the Psalms. They are rife with people worshiping God with all of their hearts. So that's how we open. That's the capstone of the Lord's Prayer. What's going to happen is it opens with a relationship that he's a loving father and he's a sovereign father, a sovereign ruler. 
And then what it's going to give us is three requests specifically about the kingdom and who God is, and then three requests that relate to the needs of God's people, which Shane will cover next week. So let's look at the first three requests. They reveal the heart of a believer in prayer. These requests, I'll give you a hint, they have nothing to do with us. They don't get to be about me at all. These first three openings, the the heart posture of God's people when they pray is, Lord, that you would increase and that I would decrease. So, all right, so let's go. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed is just a fancy word for saying, may your name be made holy. May it be made set apart. May it be lifted up, may it be glorified. May it receive all the honor and reverence that your name is due. May all the world know your reputation and your attributes. In Exodus 3, Moses has the backbone to ask God his name. And Moses is in a long line of God followers. Abraham didn't ask God his name. Isaac, Jacob, nobody asked God his name. But Moses did. Moses has like this habit of asking brazen questions. This is the first one. God, what is your name? So I can tell them when they ask me who's speaking. And God says, my name is Yahweh. I am that I am. He is the great I am. Let's think about this for a minute. What does God mean by I am? First of all, at face value, it means, Moses, you're going to Egypt where there's all these idols. People are worshiping the Nile, and they're worshiping the sun, and they're worshiping everything in between. And God is saying, of all of those gods that are not, that don't exist, that don't have ears and eyes and mouths, I am. Where can we turn in our struggles? We can't turn to money. We can't turn to sex, reputation, social media. All of these things are empty. They're worthless. They bring nothing to the table. They can't answer your prayers. They can't respond to you. They don't kneel down on a knee and wrap us up when we're hurting. But I am. He is the God who is He is also self-existent. He is the great I am. He doesn't come from anywhere. No matter how far you go back on the timeline, he already was. Not only is he self-sufficient or self-existent, he's self-sufficient. He needs nothing. He doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need anything, any outside power source. In fact, everything that is depends and leans on him. God is eternal. He exists both directions on the timeline. You could go back 100 years, 1,000 years, 100 million years, add as many zeros as you want, and he is already I am. Do the same going forward. At what point in time does he stop being I am? Eternally, in both directions. He is the originator of all that is. He is separate from all that is temporary because he is permanent. He is immutable. He never changes. Who he was yesterday is exactly who he'll be tomorrow. His character and attributes never change. He is I am. And further, maybe most importantly for us down here on earth, is that he is exactly who he has revealed himself to be. And no less. Because he is I am. And then God, later, (laughs) Moses gets brazen again. I don't know where Moses got the backbone other than he just had this deep, curious love to know God more. And he has the chutzpah to ask him another question. He says, Lord, can I see you? Can I see your glory? I want to know you. Take me to a new level of experiencing the creator God. And God goes, Moses, you don't even know what you're asking. For you to see my undiluted glory would just like disintegrate you. I'm holy, I'm set apart, and you're temporary. You're sinful. 
But, Moses, because of your heart, because of the way you love, because of your pursuit, I will put you in this cave, and I'm going to cover it with my hand. And I'm going to pass by, and I'll remove my hand, and you'll see the after effects of my glory. Not direct glory, the after effects. I'll show you the backside of my glory. And as God is doing this, God defines his own character. He defines his name. Look at this. He repeats his name twice because of the importance. It's like exponential emphasis. Exodus 34. Let's go back. Go left. It's the second book of the Bible. I want you to read it for yourself. Leave your finger in Matthew 6. We're going back. Exodus chapter 34. Oh, man. Lord, I want to see your glory. And God defines his character and defines his name. Exodus 34, we're going to start in verse 5. Boy, I get excited about this stuff. This is the God we serve. This is the God who is called. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Exodus 34, verse 5. Anybody not there yet? Uh, no? All right, all right. You ready for this? Exodus 34, verse 5. Y'all soak this in. Like, climb in. Climb into the pool of what we're about to read. Saturate and marinate in God's character. That this is directed towards all those who call on him as Lord. Whenever you see in the Old Testament, all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, this is the translator's translation of the name of God, I am, or Yahweh. And they replaced it out of tradition with all caps Lord. If you see lowercase, it means master, but all caps, this is the name of God woven into the text. So let's read this with the name of God into it. Verse 5, Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there. Just think about that. Heaven is touching earth. What is supernatural is colliding with what is temporary. Yahweh is touching down, descending there, and he stands, his presence is with Moses, and proclaims the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Hey, didn't we just read this? Yeah, the psalm was quoting this. Psalm 103. But who, God's character isn't done yet, but who will by no means Clear the guilty, clearing the guilty of sin, visiting the iniquity, the sin of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Oh, that'll make you quake. Thank God that Jesus breaks the curse on the cross for his people. This is a God. Let's, what are some of the attributes? If we pulled out some of the attributes from here, what would you say are some of the attributes that we see of God? Go ahead and yell them out. Compassionate. Thank you, Erica. Who else? Eternal. Eternal. Loving. Loving. Merciful. Patient. Patient. Omnipresent. Omnipresent. Holy. Holy. Wrathful. Just. Compassionate. Merciful. Gracious. Patient. Man, what a God we serve. When we were praying, may your name be made holy. We are talking about the eternal divine name of God being known for all of its attributes, the character of God being known in the world around us. How can they turn to a God they don't know? How can they repent before a God they don't know hates sin? How can they love a God they don't know, died on the cross for sin. 
May your name be made holy is a challenge. It's calling to God to ask him to motivate us, to empower us, to make his name famous, but not just his name, everything about his character. May your name be made holy in this world. Did you ever think about the Ten Commandments? We always skip over the third one like it's not that important. Don't take his name in vain. Uh, I guess that means that you don't stub your toe and yell, Jesus. No, that has nothing to do with it. Obviously, we need to pay attention to our words. Obviously, we don't need to degrade the name of Jesus when we stub our toe. But it means to carry. Do not take. Do not take on your shoulder like baggage. Don't carry his name in vain. What name? The name of Yahweh, representing mercy and patience and wrath and love and justice and compassion. You carry his name, Elevate. If you are a believer, if you have given your life to Jesus, if you're a follower of Yahweh, his name is imprinted on you. How do you carry it among your friends? How do you carry it on social media? How do you carry it at home? Are you carrying it in vain? Are people looking at you and they don't see a single attribute of that God? Or is he rubbing off on you because you've been marinating in his presence? And they know a little bit more about who Jesus is because they met you. And they know a little bit more about who Jesus is because you actually open your mouth to say who Jesus is. May your name be made holy. How? By God's people. Yes, by nature, by creation, it all proclaims who God is. But the only way they're going to hear words or see an example is if they've encountered someone who knows and walks with Jesus and carries the name of God with honor. May your name be made holy. One of my favorite examples that I do every now and then is I'll take our mannequin, Manuela, mannequin, and put a t-shirt on her and spray it well, right on the shirt it says, I smell like Jesus, right? All right, so Manuela smells like Jesus. And then you spray her down with coon urine from Academy Sporting Goods. And you say, who wants to come smell what Jesus smells like? And obviously, it smells terrible. It's raccoon urine on a shirt that says, I smell like Jesus. That's carrying his name in vain. When people encounter you and they meet you and they talk to you, do they hear the world? Do they see the world? Do they see sin? Do they see every other culture that's rubbed off on you? Or do they see Jesus? Do you smell like Jesus or do you smell like the world? Do you smell like Jesus or do you smell like the world? You know what? That smell is going to be beautiful to some people that God is calling with his Holy Spirit. And that smell is going to be offensive to people who have rebuked God, who are in their own rebellion and who are dying in their sin because you represent light and those who are in darkness don't want to be in light because their sins are evil and their ways are evil. If you look like a duck, smell like a duck, walk like a duck, the same test is true for a believer. How do you carry his name? Do you make it known? Do you make it holy? Do you make it set apart in this world from every other name and every other faith? and every other desire and idol. I think this is the last place we're going to turn before we go back to Matthew. Let's go to Ephesians. Back of the book. If you've been to Romans already, you're pretty close. Keep going right. Ephesians chapter 4. I want you to read this for yourself. It's a little long. This is the job description of every believer. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to go to verse 17. Anybody not there yet? It'd be really cool if during these long, awkward moments, if Miko was like chunking on his guitar right now. Something kind of metal. 
No, I can't handle the Jeopardy music. Are you guys ready? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. This is the job description when a believer enters the kingdom of heaven and starts following Jesus. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Can't, like, can't walk like a duck anymore. Time to start walking like Jesus. How do they walk? In the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. This is who we all were. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life that is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on, it's like, it's like the idea of putting on a jacket. You are wearing, you're putting on the new self created, how? After the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. After the likeness, a Christian doesn't reflect the world because a Christian is now reflecting, carrying in the likeness of Yahweh, of Jesus. So what's Jesus' model for prayer? It begins with worship and a critical recognition of who God is. Secondly, it makes the request for God to be known through creation, yes, but also through us. So all can know him for who he is. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Whoo, are you guys with me still? Is this way deeper than you thought it was going to be? Yeah. Your kingdom come. This is the second request. We're asking for his kingdom to advance in this world both in the believer and in non-believers, by the orchestration of God and using us as he wills. The kingdom of God is Jesus' main topic. Read the Gospels. Jesus doesn't stop talking about the kingdom. All of his parables are, the kingdom is like this. Those who enter the kingdom are like this. Those who are excluded from the kingdom are like this. Everything for Jesus comes back to this kingdom. And the kingdom kind of has two levels of understanding. The first is this high-level perspective. Do you all know what king means, literally? If you dig into the Aramaic word for king, it goes back to the word simply possessor, owner. So of our Father in heaven, what does he possess? His kingdom, the extent of his kingdom is the extent of his reign, is the extent of all created things. All of the universe, what is seen, what is unseen, what is natural, what is supernatural from the heavens down is his kingdom. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell within. In his kingdom, he is the sovereign ruler. And guess what? He is even in this kind of crazy, hard to wrap our minds around way, he is even presiding over the kingdom of the enemy. The kingdom of the enemy that is in full-blown rebellion against God, and yet God uses him to his perfect will. If you're like, whoa, I don't even, what? I don't even understand how that, think about Jesus dying on the cross. What do you think the, the, the worst sin in all of history could be? It's the killing of the perfect son of God. And yet when you look in Acts 2, it says that Peter points his finger at the people and goes, you killed him. This was in your hearts. You did this. You killed the Son of God, just as God predestined, just as God ordained. When you were at your worst, God was still in control. When it looks like Satan is winning, when he is crushing things around you and your world is closing in and it seems like that the world is going to what, the hell in a handbasket, God is still in control. He's never lost control. The enemy is a pawn in the sovereign will of our Father in heaven. 
And there's a second level. And it's the kingdom of heaven in the hearts of people. His kingdom surrounds King Jesus and it surrounds those who have defected, abandoned, broken away from the world, the devil, and our own flesh and have pledged allegiance to Jesus. That is the kingdom. And the kingdom of God moves and grows wherever Jesus is proclaimed and wherever people are also defecting from the world and giving their lives to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that we are ambassadors. Do you know what an ambassador is? Like a country sends an ambassador on behalf of doing the work of the country itself, representing the country itself, reflecting the country itself, speaking for the authorities of the, com- of the country itself, and yet under the full submission under the head of that country. That's an ambassador. That's us. We go out in the world. Jesus says, go into the world wherever you go. And you know what? The world doesn't just include overseas. It also includes next door. It also includes in your house. It includes in your hallways. It includes wherever you are. Go into the world as an ambassador. 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal, his appeal, his call, his welcome, his reaching out through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Can those around you tell whose kingdom you serve? How are you carrying your king's name? Our Father, who is in heaven, may your name be made holy. Your kingdom come. So Jesus' model prayer begins with worship and a critical recognition of who God is. Two, it makes the request for God to be known through his creation and through us. And third, it's asking God to open people's eyes, to bring them to repentance, to turn them to surrender their lives and turn to King Jesus. Let your kingdom come is a prayer that our allegiance would grow and that the allegiance of people around us would turn to Christ. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is our last portion for tonight. This prayer, may your will be done as it is in heaven, is a prayer that all the earth and all people will submit to the authority as willingly as in heaven. Another example for my kids, my little girl Nadia, she's beautiful, she's fun, she has more personality than I've ever seen in a kid even older than her. But she has this thing about wanting, like as you're putting her to bed, she'll always make one more request. Can I have water? No. Can I have this doll? No. Can I have these things? No. And her, her big one is, can I wear my shoes to bed? Like she wants to wear her ballet shoes to bed. And it's a terrible idea. And almost every time if you tell her no, she has like this full-blown meltdown fit. And I don't respond well to fits. So her fits are decreasing quickly as her punishments increase. But she has this fit because she wants something she doesn't get her way, her will, so she bucks the system. She complains, she cries, she has a fit. What a way to cement that I'm never going to give her what she wants. We go to Christ like this. Whenever we pray, we pray to the Lord like this. Lord, I want my way. I want what I want. I've already looked down the path, Lord, and I can tell that if I get what I want, everything's going to be better. And the Lord's going, wait a minute. This has never been about your will. Believers in Jesus, if you're here with me tonight, our prayer actually changes to, Lord, I want your will over my will. Not just that I want to submit to your will, but in fact, oh Lord, that my will would bleed into being just like yours. That my heart would melt. That even if it's something I don't want, that my love for you, my obedience to you, my allegiance for you falls in line with exactly what you want, more than what I want. May your will be done right here on earth, right here in my life as it is in heaven. Let the people around me, let them give their hearts to you. Let them be saved by you. Bring them to repentance so that your will is done in their lives just as it is in heaven. Our prayers move from wish-making, magic spells, and coercion into our prayers or requests with submission.
Jesus models this for us when he's about to go to the cross. And how does he open his prayer in the garden? He says, if it's your will. That's how he opens his prayer. Lord, let this cup of suffering, let this cup of your wrath about to be poured out on me, let it pass from me. And then he closes with this. Not my will, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus opens and closes his prayer with God's will. If anyone in here is kind of reeling from the idea, if you're like struggling with the idea of like giving God what he wants over what we want, first of all, he's God. He gets what he wants. He's omnipotent. We don't have the power to fight him. But I want you to hear, the, hear my heart on this. There's a great quote. Couldn't find out who said it. If we could see what God sees, if we could know what God knows, we would choose what God chooses. I can see this down the path, and God's going, no. I see everything. Presiding from heaven, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. So what's something you've been praying for for a long time? Maybe the next time you pray about it, surrender it to. Lord, if you say no, I'm still yours. If you say no, I'm following you with all my heart. If you say no, Lord, change my heart that your no becomes exactly, exactly what I want to. Because your will is greater than my will. So it's Jesus' model for prayer. It begins with worship and a recognition of who God is. It makes the request for God to be known in creation and through us. It's asking God to open people's eyes and save them. And it's asking that God's will will be done in us and around us, even if it overrules our will. So the first half of the model prayer has nothing to do with us. It is all about God, his will, his kingdom, his relationship towards us. And it's his kingdom that we are adopted into through the blood of Jesus. Here's kind of a cool story that I found. There was a minister, and he was ministering in Europe, in Czechoslovakia, in Hungary, and finally Romania. And they're trying to take a train from one place that he preached from, I think it was Czechoslovakia, or whatever borders on Romania, and they're trying to get into Romania. But the problem is that the Romanian border guards really, 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 really don't like Americans. Less so, they like Christian Americans. And so as their rickety train is like pulling to a stop, the Romanian guards get on board and they start walking down the aisles and they spot their crew right away and they're like drawn to it like magnets. They're like, oh man. And they were already told by the missionaries there that, that there's a possibility they could be arrested, that they could have their stuff confiscated, there's a lot of things that can go wrong here. Expect it. So here they are, and the soldiers are zeroing in on them, and they see a lady with a brown paper bag on her lap, and they have her open it, and there's a Bible inside. And they're like, oh, we're going to get it good now. And so as they're quizzing, they're like pulling luggage down, they're pulling the Americans' luggage out of the tops, and they're like sorting through stuff. Finally, kind of like the leader, the commander guy gets on the train, and he's like gruff, and he's rude, and he comes to the back, and he takes the lady's Bible, and he looks around at all of them and he starts flipping through the pages. And he has broken English. And he finds a page and he goes, and I'm not going to try to fake the Romanian accent, but he says, I'm not Romanian. And they were confused. And he said, I'm not Romanian. And he points his finger at them and he goes, you're not American, you're not American, you're not American, you're not American. And he turns the Bible around to them and I'll just read it, but he says, he says, by now we were quite confused. He pointed at the text and he gave it to me and he said, read what it says. And I looked at it and it said, Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. The guard was a Christian. He turned to his subordinates and said, let these people alone. They're okay. They're Christians. This man understood something about the kingdom of, kingdom of God. Our first place is not as Americans. Our first place isn't allegiance to anything else but King Jesus. That's where our citizenship is. 
I've got a couple challenges for you tonight. Knowing what you know now, having gone through these lines methodically, open up the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, and rewrite it in your own words. Add, add to it. Add other scripture. Build your prayer into the Lord's Prayer as a model. The second challenge is, what's an area in your life that you've been holding on to? Begin to pray to surrender it. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are our dad. I thank you, Lord, that our citizenship is not here. That no matter what happens in our lives, Lord, we have hope because our hope is not anchored in anything in this life. Our hope is anchored in who is far above and beyond this life. Thank you, Lord, that you are the great I am. Thank you for the opportunity to serve you, to make your name known, to surrender every day. Thank you, Lord, for Shane Scott speaking next week. Anoint his mouth, anoint his study. Let him proclaim your word with truth, with clarity, and with conviction. And Lord, over the next few minutes, I pray that we will worship a God who is both near and intimate with us and a God who is presiding over all that is. I thank you, Lord, for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.